by clinical trainees and for clinical trainees, this is Well-Rounded. This installment of our special COVID-19 series will take a look at the history and larger societal implications of pandemics. Your hosts are Isabel Rosenthal and Dan Arteaga. Joining them is Dr. David Jones, a trained psychiatrist and historian who currently teaches medical history and ethics at Harvard University. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Hey, Isabel, how's it going? Hey, Dan. It's okay. I'm glad that we're talking again tonight um, about a topic that is on the top of mind for all of us, and that is the response in history to this novel coronavirus that we're all experiencing now. Yeah, absolutely. And we're very fortunate today to have Dr. David Jones here with us on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here in these unpleasurable times. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Dr. Jones, we wanted to get you on the podcast Because you've written about COVID, you have a historical perspective on pandemics. Actually, in a recent New England Journal article that you you authored, you said epidemics were of interest only to historians, which, which I found interesting. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what you meant by that? Because now it feels like infectious diseases are are critical to all of our lives. Yes, my comment about epidemics appearing to be of interest only to historians was talking about thinking that prevailed back in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. With the advent of antibiotics and immunizations, which really transformed medicine in the 1950s and 1960s, many doctors became confident that epidemics would never threaten human populations again. And it was in that setting that people started to think it was only historians who would ever care about these events that were a relic of the human past. But as soon as that hubris emerged, Uh, It started to be first eroded by diseases like herpes and legionnaires, which were considered to be new diseases in the 1970s. And then that confidence was completely shattered in the 1980s with the dramatic emergence of the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. And then since that time, it has just been one after another. Uh, In the 1990s, when I was in medical school, that was when Ebola first came to widespread public attention. And there was something about the the horror and fear of that disease that really captured the public imagination. And in the 2000s, it was SARS and then fears of uh, influenza epidemics. And you start to see people, experts, warning that the next great pandemic is inevitable. It will happen. We live in such a globalized world. All the risk factors are in place. And people might have been reassured. You know, they had predicted influenza pandemics in 2006 and 2009 and Nothing really came of them, and SARS was relatively easily controlled. The Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa was a a shock and a bit of a surprise. But now, five years later, we have not quite mastered, but substantially controlled Ebola with both immunizations and new treatments. And then all of a sudden, now we find ourselves in this epidemic of COVID. And so I think it will be a long time before people ever say that humans have conquered infectious disease. As a historian and someone who's studied these epidemics and watched as the world initially seemed not so concerned um, about the spread of COVID-19 from, you know, originally from Wuhan, were you prepared for what was about to happen here? Did you feel that people were reacting appropriately? What were you thinking in January when this was sort of first coming to media attention? 
I don't think anyone or not many people would have predicted in January where we would be now. That uncertainty was always there. But the thing that was so striking for historians who have studied epidemics was how closely events seemed to be following the usual script. Mm -hmm. There are certain recurring, recurring themes that come over and over again in the history of epidemics. And this was really well described by one of my teachers, Charles Rosenberg, uh, who wrote a famous essay back in the 1980s in the midst of the AIDS epidemic about how epidemics are a dramatic event. And like a fine work of play, there's a certain structure that epidemics seem to march their way through. Mm -hmm. And it was really this pattern that was so easy to watch unfold going back to early January. So the first thing that Rosenberg describes is this period of progressive revelation, that there are a whole series of clues going on that something is taking place, something unusual, the early signs of an epidemic. And for a variety of reasons, those clues are almost always missed. Sometimes they're missed because people have a tendency to want to reassure themselves and to dismiss clues that something might be wrong. Sometimes it's a case of economic self-interest. As we've now seen, epidemics are really bad for the economy. Yeah. And so societies often have a desire to minimize. I mean, certainly going back to the Middle Ages, if Venice ever said, oh my God, I think we have plague in Venice, that would cripple the economy. Mm -hmm. It was much easier to ignore all the dead rats that were piling up in the street until it was too late. And certainly there was a sense coming out of China that this, something was happening. We heard all these rumors that the government was trying to squelch these rumors. And a lot of people, I think, on the outside said, well, that's China. That's not going to happen to us. We don't need to worry about this yet. I think we were all guilty of feeling a little bit like that. Oh, absolutely. But what happens is eventually, as the epidemic takes hold and accumulates, these signals become impossible to ignore. Mm -hmm. And again, in the classic accounts of bubonic plague or in Albert Camus' famous book about a plague outbreak, you know, eventually there are so many dead rats that you can't ignore them. People start getting sick. People start dying. The emergency rooms start to fill up. And at some point, even the biggest denier has to admit that something has happened. And eventually that happened in China. Would you maybe consider, you know, the current reports coming out of Milan and the retrospective studies coming out of China kind of being that moment for us now? Yeah, the thing that's complicated about this epidemic, and it's probably true for past epidemics, you know, the, the, the basic pattern you see in that, Rosenberg described these three acts of progressive revelation, then managing randomness as we attempt to explain what's going on, and then the third act where we negotiate a public response. Those have played out on a different time frame for the different parts of the world. So China was hit first. So you can see China march its way through those three different stages of the epidemic response. And so China was well into act three, trying to figure out how to contain and control this epidemic when the rest of the world is still borrowing the language from psychiatry, pre-contemplative. You know, we hadn't really realized that this was going to be a problem for the rest of us. And so while China is in, hopefully, the decline phase, then you start to see these clues that it had spread. First, it was to Iran, then it was Italy, and it was a small number of cases, and people were a little bit concerned, but not terribly concerned. And then there were these cruise ships, uh, and that got a lot of attention. And again, it was still, I don't think, clear to anyone in the United States that this was going to be the epic-defining event for us that it has now seems to have become. And you know, the initial denial was all there. You can see it clearly in the statements of President Trump, who was consistently saying, there's no problem here. It'll be over in a few days. It's just a few cases. There's nothing to worry about. Uh, and you could track his statements to see him go from 
the early part of Act One, and now he's now fully accepted that there is something going on here, and he knew it all along. Yeah, exactly. And I think speaking of sort of leadership and the history of pandemics, are there historical examples of good leadership in times of pandemic crises? Boy, it's probably much easier to find examples of bad leadership during epidemics than to find examples of good leadership. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> because often what happens is the pandemic response often becomes politicized. And, and we all see you know, this politicization as a fact of our current era. That's just not the case. And it turns out uh, back in the early days of the United States, in the early 1790s, it wasn't clear that we would end up with a two-party system that we have now. The political parties didn't exist. And eventually, as the play Hamilton made famous, you know, we, the country splits along the lines between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. It turns out that the first significant issue that drove the schism that became the two-party system in the United States was an outbreak of yellow fever in Philadelphia, which was then the capital, in 1793. And you have political and medical leaders on both sides of a specific debate a medical debate. Was yellow fever a contagious disease or did it come from the environment? And that split about etiology had very different political consequences. If you believed it was contagious, then you would want to quarantine Philadelphia and block trade, especially from the Caribbean, which was terrible for the many trading interests in Philadelphia. And if you believed that it was coming from the environment, then there was no reason to quarantine and free trade could continue. And so you see you know, a vicious political fight between these two nascent political parties in this country, exactly about this question of yellow fever and its contagiousness. And now you'll see that pattern time and time again. Whenever an epidemic strikes somewhere, it always gets politicized. You'll have competing political leaders on either side of the issue. And it's often not helpful to have these kinds of debates taking place when a society is facing a major crisis. This is fascinating to me that these issues can really kind of show us what the differences are in our leadership. What else can pandemics teach us? I guess, what are the other common themes that you have witnessed in your research? Well, one of the things that has become clear by studying the history of epidemics is that epidemics put a tremendous strain on the societies they strike. It couldn't possibly be a more self-evident comment than that this week. And often what happens when societies are put under pressure, you can see certain kinds of latent tensions that had been there but hadn't been visible. And so historians, again, especially Charles Rosenberg, had described how epidemics can therefore be used as a sampling device to see what's really going on in a society, to see what really matters to a society, to see what people in a society truly care about. And so there are many different things you can see in a society. One thing you'll often see during epidemics are tensions by race and also by class. Mm -hmm. When epidemics strike, people want to find out why has this happened? There's a demand for an explanation. And often the explanations have played out along two parallel tracks. There's usually a medical or scientific explanation, you know, what is going on here? And in the current crisis, the Chinese answered, answered that for us quite quickly. There's this novel coronavirus. Here is its RNA sequence. This is the cause. But then there is often a much more social, political, economic, existential question. You know, why did this happen to us? Why now? And this almost always involves blaming someone for doing something. Mm -hmm. And in the current case, there was all this fixation early on on these Chinese meat markets and these practices that Americans seem as strange and exotic. But you can find that in any epidemic uh, in the past. You know, there were concerns 
when there were epidemics in the 19th century, that somehow was the Jewish population doing this. Or when bubonic plague struck San Francisco in 1900, it was blamed on the Chinese residents who lived in Chinatown. Uh, when AIDS struck in the 1980s, uh, it was blamed on gay men and uh, injection drug users. And so there's this, always this desire to blame someone for it. And then tragically, what happens is the people who are blamed are often excluded from the caregiving efforts. You would hope that when epidemics struck, a society would rush to take care of those who were the sickest. That's not what we saw with AIDS in the 1980s. It's not what we saw with plague in San Francisco in the 1900s. Uh, it's too soon to tell what will happen in the United States. I hope we won't see that kinds of backlash. There had been early stories of anti-Chinese bias in the United States so far. Right. But I hope people will real, realize that that kind of blaming response, as ubiquitous as it has been in the history of epidemics, just is not productive. Mm -hmm. And what we really need right now is for society to rally and support everyone else and take on this challenge together. So how do you think the U.S. is doing so far? If you had asked me a week ago, did I think the American population would tolerate, would quietly tolerate extreme social isolation? I would have been hugely skeptical. And I'm really amazed that people have been so willing to go along with this. Yeah. But just as the epidemics put strains on society, our responses to the epidemic will also put strains on society. And so there's a real question of how long people will be able to keep this up with good humor. I think there's a lot of fear. And how are you feeling? Are you feeling afraid? Should the public be concerned right now? How are you feeling thinking about the next few months? I go back and forth. I haven't yet generated much anxiety myself. And I may be a naive optimist, but there are a couple different reasons for that. One is in my, is in my work as a historian, especially my early work, I've read a lot of accounts of past epidemics, especially as smallpox and a little bit of bubonic plague. And you read these stories, and these are the stories that would, can give you nightmares. It's just the, the horror of what epidemics have done to humans in the past. You know, accounts of bodies lying uncollected in the streets because no one's willing to go near them, of complete breakdown of social behaviors, the real horror of what the virus smallpox can do to a human body. So I've read all of these things, and those have left me a bit numb. I mean, none of what we're seeing now is anywhere close to that. We are very far from what smallpox has done historically. Now, that might not be a fair standard. We eradicated smallpox. We've reset our threshold for what is unacceptable. And COVID may prove to be incredibly disruptive in the way that smallpox has been in the past. But there have only been a handful of times, you know, three to five times in recorded human history, where you've had an epi epidemic that has killed the equivalent of millions of people. Influenza did in 1918. AIDS has over the past 40 years. Bubonic plague did in the 1340s. But beyond that, these, these events are very, very rare. And so by some simplistic historical argument, you could say, well, what are the odds that we are in one of those once or twice a millennium event right now? Well, mm -hmm. it's unlikely. The fact that it's unlikely, of course, doesn't mean it can't happen. People will look at the current circumstances and say, well, even if catastrophic epidemics have been rare in the past, we have now structured society in such a way to make them much more likely. We have humans and animals living, not living together in the way that we used to, but with uh, industrial agriculture, there's intense encounters between humans and animals in different ways that leads to the transmission of viruses across species. We have huge urban 
populations with population densities unprecedented in the history of the human species. We have global commerce, we have global air travel. All of these things have really changed in ways that absolutely do increase our risk. Even if epidemics were rare in the past, you can make a plausible argument they're more common now. Even if epidemics are more likely, haven't we seen massive improvements in modern medicine and public health? Shouldn't those move the needle as well? The flip side is we're much better at this than we used to be. Over the thousands of years that humans have been dealing with epidemics, we have developed a whole series of very good techniques for managing them, whether it's the public health efforts of isolation, quarantine, immunization, to the basic medical care that both of you as health officers will now be on the front lines of providing. If someone went into respiratory failure in 1918, there was nothing you could do for them other than give them a warm blanket and say prayers for them. Now we can do extraordinary things to keep people alive, to get them through a viral storm. Of course. The challenge isn't so much, do we have the technology that we need? The challenge is, can we get it to everyone who needs it? Uh, And that's always the fear about shortages of ventilators, shortages of ICU beds. That's what's driving the huge efforts at social distancing. Can we distribute the burden of cases over a long enough period of time that we're spared having to ration healthcare uh, in the hospitals? Well, you know, I don't know if I'm more reassured or more worried after our conversation, certainly more educated. We really thank you for your time, Dr. Jones, and uh, best of luck to you in Boston. Best of luck to both of you on the wards uh, as we face what will either be the coming storm of this epidemic or a success story of social distancing that will make this the epidemic that never came hard to this country. That's certainly my hope. Yes, our hope as well. Thank you so much. And Dan, is that a wrap? I think that's a wrap. 